Well, good morning and welcome to Grace. I'm Pastor Ryan. The nature of salvation is a subject that is often presented in a mostly eschatological reality or or something that happens in the future or after we die or in the sweet by and by. However, it seems that Jesus understood eternal life as something that we could begin to experience right now. Today we will examine the prayer of Jesus from John chapter 17 and look specifically at Jesus' claim that everlasting life is found in knowing God. Thanks for listening. On my very first deployment as a missionary uh, working over in the Caribbean, I and I might have shared part of this story with you before, but as the plane was landing in the capital city of Nassau and I had a departing plane headed over to the family island of Eleuthera, um, the plane I was on was a little bit late, and so as mine was coming down, the one I needed to be on was taking off, and I was stranded there at the airport. Uh, 19 years old, didn't know... Didn't know anybody, foreign country, didn't even have a cell phone, much less the numbers to call. So uh, I just sat there and I worried a little bit, prayed a little bit. And after a few hours, as the airport began to get more vacant, giant, big Bahamian man came up and he said, are you Ryan? And I said, yes, I am. And... uh, (laughs) He said that one of the missionaries, whose name was Patrick, had contacted his family who lived there in Nassau. And uh, his family was going to send over his brother. uh, His name was Peter. And I was going to be welcomed into his mother's home for the night. And they would get me on the next plane in the morning. Without question or debate, I said, yes, sir. Okay. And so I sat there outside waiting for Peter. And sure enough, here a man came, pulled up with eyes about as wide as mine, where he says, are you Ryan? I said, are you Peter? He said, yeah. And so I got in his car. He had all his kids with him, and we kind of topped it up. I told him I was majoring in world missions and kind of the story of my life, and he dropped me off. And I got to meet his mother, who was just the sweetest lady. Um, she f- had just recently became a Christian. And in fact, I think for years had lived around Christian things, and you'd see that in that culture, but uh, didn't really have it active in her life um, But she had a younger son, the youngest of the family, whose name was Samuel. And Samuel wasn't quite following the Lord. He was out partying with his friends that night, she told me, um, as she showed me the bed that she had laid out. And she put a big fan right next to the bed because she knew I would be just so uncomfortable there in that summer heat. Um, She said that Samuel would be likely coming back later that night. And so um, it was late already, and she went to bed, and I got myself ready. And I sat there reading my Bible, and the clock ticked on, and the clock ticked on. And then close to midnight, sure enough, the door opened and there stumbling in was Samuel with eyes kind of bloodshot. And me, in my gleeful ignorance, got up and thought I'd go over and introduce myself. And here in his mother's house is this white American in his boxer shorts (laughs) at midnight saying, hi. (laughs) Samuel's eyes changed. He got very still. He did not extend his hand to reach out and shake my hand. And I, what felt like an eternity, stood there. And the only thought that could come to my mind was, I know Patrick, his older brother. Very cautiously, Samuel reached out his hand and shook mine. Uh, Needless to say, I slept with one eye open that whole night (laughs) long. 
uh, tried my best to explain to Samuel who I was and why I was in his mother's house. Um, but the lesson that I learned very quickly, and one that probably you have heard before, is that it's not what you know, it's who you know. I mean, I could have told Samuel, hey, I, I know this passage of the Bible, and I've been to this school, and he wouldn't care at all. The only thing that kept me from being murdered that night <laughs> was the fact that I knew his family. And I find that is an extremely apt metaphor for what needs to be proclaimed louder in Christendom in the world that we live in. Folks, it really isn't what you know. It isn't. It's who you know. And we miss that because what we've done is manufactured a religious structure around us that has occupied our heads with fulfilling many times traditions that were passed on such that you would be confirmed in those rather than woven into a personal relationship with the true living God. Because it doesn't matter what you know. Not a single person is entered into heaven, into the presence of God upon judgment day by saying, I know the date of the Exodus. I memorized the fruit of the Spirit. I know the 66 books of the Bible. It's not what you know. It is entirely a matter of do you know his son, Jesus Christ. And so I feel like one of the things that we have to focus on as disciples is paying close attention to what we mean by the word saved. We're, we're used to that word, right? Are you, are you saved? I'm saved. And what, from what exactly? Well, what does salvation entail? And this is, this is what I'm really calling us to this morning. As we're going to continue in John's gospel. If you brought your Bibles, please take them out. We're going to be in John chapter 17. We're just continuing to move on in this discourse that Jesus gives there in the upper room. And then leaving the upper room, going to Gethsemane with his disciples on the night that he would be betrayed. These are his last words. So if, if there's any teachers in here right now, maybe you know how important it is on that last message that you get. That last lesson that you have with your students and that's what we're studying today's passage in john 17 is a tough one though in my preparation for it i um i have found across the board preachers and commentators have listed that this is if the bible if the message of discipleship even if john's letter were a spider web this is like the middle of it everything is kind of coalescing here in chapter 17. The metaphor I like to think of is like one of those big cheeseburgers that you get at a nice restaurant. You guys know the cheeseburgers I'm talking about, right? You got mayo, you got lettuce and onions. And, I mean, they hand you that thing and an alligator couldn't get its mouth around that thing, right? And so you're, you're doing like one of your squishing it, ah, and it's dripping down, right? That's this passage. That's where we're at, all right? We're, we're going to try to take the biggest bite we can this morning out of it, but we're going to make a mess a little bit. There's going to be far more than I can cover in the time that I have, um, but that's, that's the scope of what we're going to try to focus on. Asking what it means to be saved. What is salvation really? Is it something that we're waiting for? Uh, I want you to know, maybe you or a lot of Christians, they think of getting saved as like fire insurance. I got, it's next month we're paying our, our homeowners, right? Anybody else? You got to keep current on this now, right? Why? Well, because what if something happens, right? A lot of people, unfortunately, they think of their faith in Jesus Christ like that. And unfortunately, a lot of Christians who are worshiping God right now, they attend church assuming, oh, I'm saved because I was baptized. Does that save you? Baptism saves you? If it were that easy, let's go to the hospital and just dunk every kid right now and save everybody if that's, if that's all it took. 
How about confirmation? Does that save you? Your parents going to, does going to church save you? I, I feel like we need a better understanding even of what we mean by this word, saved. <clears throat> to that end, I've entitled this message as we're studying discipleship, Knowing Him. And what we'll do is we're going to look into chapter 17, just the first five verses. As you kind of wrap yourselves around some context here as we get into it, I want to remind you that chapter 16 was all about understanding what the coming of the Spirit would be like. This paraclete, this helper, this one who calls out alongside you. And then as we saw even last week, how we find true joy through our union of the Spirit's indwelling in us. That's where the source of joy comes from. That's the heels on which we're entering this passage. And then in John 17, Jesus is going to pray. Now, you've all heard of the Lord's Prayer, right? How does it start? Okay, well, that's not it. That's, that's, you were taught wrong. So was I. That's actually the disciples' prayer. Um, there, there's actually part of it that would remove Jesus from being able to pray that. I wonder, this is kind of like quiz time. Does anyone know what line in what's commonly referred to as the Lord's Prayer is something Jesus himself cannot pray? Forgive us our... Can Jesus pray that? No. Jesus is sinless. He, he has no sin. So the, the Lord's Prayer, it's really the disciples' prayer. They're the ones who are like, teach us to pray. And Jesus says, all right, this is what it ought to look like. John 17, this is the Lord's Prayer. Jesus now prays, and he prays in three categories. The first, verse 1 through 5, he prays for himself. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, The next two sections start in verse 6, and then all the way through 19, he prays for the disciples that are there with them, for what they're going to face. And then starting in in verse 20, uh, he's going to pray for all those who will believe. He prays for you. How cool is that? Jesus prays. For you. Um, so we're going to get into that next week. But uh, right now, verses 1 through 5, again, we won't be able to cover it all. I ask you to follow along as I read. After Jesus said this, he looked towards heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Now, was that a big bite? Was that a big mouthful for everybody? I want you to know from this passage right here, a preacher could use it as a springboard to talk about any of the following. We could cover the eternality of Jesus, the deity of Jesus, the doctrine of election, the doctrine of limited atonement, the doctrine of the perseverance of believers, the exclusivity of Jesus, Not to mention the other subjects that really could springboard out of the web that is connected here in these five verses. We could cover Trinitarianism, Soteriology, Theology Proper, Christology, or the doctrine of sovereignty of God. There's so much more that we could cover. So I'm going to hit the gas right now. Everybody ready for this? We're going to move quickly through five observations. And then I'm going to get into the main one because I I can't leave you with five. I can't leave you with 30 here. I'm going to give you just one. But of these five, the first thing I want you to see is that Jesus prepares for the cross by focusing on the glory of God. 
So I want you to know, John 17 is where the disciples have left the upper room and they're going out into the garden. And you might be more familiar with this in the passage that we would get from Luke's gospel or Matthew's gospel. Jesus himself goes over to a solitary place that happens just after this prayer. He goes off by himself and what does he tell the disciples to do as he goes? Take a nap, you guys. You had a long... No, he says, pray. Keep praying while I go off and pray. And, and they do fall asleep as Jesus is off praying. But we have recorded for us the words of Jesus, just saying it just loud enough. Do you remember what he says? Lord, Father, take this cup from me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus' prayer, even there recorded for us in Matthew's gospel, is one where what is he focusing on? Is he focusing on his will or the will of the Father? He's focusing on the will of the Father, and that's what I want you to see at the very beginning here. Verse 1 shows us his prayer is, the time has come. Well, what time? Yeah, not Avengers Endgame didn't just come. The time, it's, not, it's not Labor Day. It's not vac- That's not the time he's referring to. The time he's referring to is the time for which Jesus came to earth, and it's this right here. This time has come. And so imagine you knew that was coming. Put yourself in his shoes for a moment. What if this was you? And you found out you're going to be nailed to a tree. You're going to have your arms spread out so far that you will gasp for breath only by pushing up on a nail through your feet. What would you do in the final hours that you had? I think you would pray similarly to Jesus, but here's what I want you to know. You're going to have trials. You will have hardships and challenges. In fact, Jesus himself says, unless you deny yourself, take up your and follow me. You can't be my disciple. So if you're interested in being a disciple, you're going to have some kind of a cross to bear. I want you to see how Jesus prepares for that. He doesn't focus on this. What does he focus on? He focuses on the glory of God. Now, again, I could take the rest of our sermon and just go off that, but i got to move on. So uh, come to Bible study if you want to talk more about that. Number two, Jesus has authority over all people. One of the things that we will see here is that there is uh, two groups that are mentioned. There's a large group, all people, and then there's a smaller group, those who have been given to him. Who does Jesus have authority over? Not just the Christians. That's super important for us to understand. You know why? Because Jesus is the true king. And right now he has ascended and seated at the Father's right hand. The king is returning with what kind of authority? All-inclusive authority. You might again hear the echo from Matthew's gospel in chapter 28 as he's there with his disciples just there before the ascension where we have those great words, therefore, go make disciples of all nations Just before he says those words, it says the disciples were still a little concerned. They were doubting whether they could do it or not. They had these fears because Jesus was leaving. And he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. Jesus has all authority. I could take 30 minutes and just do that, but we got to move on. Here we go. Number three. Jesus gives eternal life. If you look with me into verse 2, he says, For uh, for you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life 
to all those you have given to him. So there again, you got the two groups of people. You have all people he has authority over, and then you have those who he gives eternal life to. I want to focus in on that word eternal life. Um, th- this is something that I fear in English we just don't fully grasp. The word here for life in the original language is zoe, and that is not the common word for life in Greek, for like physical breathing life. Bios is the Greek word for physical life. What word do we get from bios? Biology. Biology. Uh, This idea of the living things, right? Um, Jesus does not come to say that he will give eternal bios. He uses a different word here. It's It's this deeper word, zoe. Zoe is a word that means life that's of a higher character and quality. It's very similar to when Jesus says, I've come that they may have life and have it to the full, your Bible might say, or have it in abundance, the Bible might say. Best metaphor I can give you here for eternal life is if you can imagine your favorite drink. Everybody imagine your non-alcoholic favorite drink for a moment. And imagine you're just, uh, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pr- produce a scenario, right? We're out cutting wood, we're sweating, it's 95 degrees, 130% humidity, and someone comes with that drink, that cup, right? If you pick coffee, pick something else. So, um, <laughs> iced coffee, right? And they, it, they start to pour you a cup, right? They start to pour, and what do you say? Yeah, keep going, that's right. And, and they keep pouring, and, and it just starts to overflow and it's like dripping down. I mean that's this word that's zoe eternal here is a word that means life without ceasing life it's not just speaking of physical breathing life eternal life here is the concept that you will have a quality of life that overflows abundantly beyond what anyone can imagine uh, there have been some commentators that have speculated that in the beginning when God created and he, he breathed breath into the life of Adam, that he gave him zoe kind of life. This, this fullness of life that Adam knew there in Eden. And then when Adam and Eve sinned and when death came into the world, they ceased from living zoe and they started to live bios. They're still, they're still breathing. Right? The, the, the operating system is still functioning, right? But something's missing. Jesus here says that he has come to deliver this kind of life. If Zoe were walking, or if, if Bios were walking, then Zoe would be dancing. If, if Bios were talking, then Zoe would be singing. You get the idea? This is what he has come to bring, a quality and a kind of life that nobody's seen before. Uh, One of the thoughts that I had as I looked into this was, what if you found this? Because where do people look for life today? You, you, You know they do, right? Everybody's searching to get more life. Some people find it in vacations. Some people find it in the amassing of possessions, right? They want to have life as much as they can. Uh, the fountain of youth illustration goes back centuries, right? Because this is a common problem for humanity. You only have so much time, right? It's like trying to squeeze more juice than what's there out of the life that you have. Jesus says, I can give you a quality of life that's so far beyond that. It's eternal life. Uh, there, there's a story, and I, 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 I'll try to be brief with this. Je- Jesus goes to the woman who's at the well. And this is earlier in John's gospel. And he says that by the giving of the spirit, he will 
give a drink to her that will produce a stream within her that will never end. A flowing stream. And John records that Jesus said this to indicate the spirit that lives within us. Which is why I want to make a point to show chapter 16 was all about the spirit. And now Jesus is talking about this eternal zoe, this kind of life that we have. Imagine if you found that. What if you, what, what if you found a way of giving people just this amazing life. Would you keep that to yourself? I'm pretty sure you'd call Channel 6 News, right? If you found the fountain of youth, if you found a magic little pill, if you found something that could provide this kind of life, what would you do with that information? Do you see now why I feel like I think the church has maybe got this a little bit off? Because we treat our faith as something that happens once a week. That is not this word. That is not eternal life. Eternal life, it transcends every single moment of the week. And it doesn't end there, as we will see here in a moment. All right, I got to move on. Number four is this. Jesus brings glory to the Father by completing his work. If you look with me in verse four, very briefly, Jesus says, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. I could take 30 minutes just on this. Here's a 30-minute here's a sermon in one minute. You have a work to do. Everybody hear me say amen. amen. You're, if you didn't have a work to do, he would have called you home. I, 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 what, kind of, what kind of foolishness would it be to leave us here without a purpose? When heaven is offered to us, when being in the presence of God is offered to us, which means if you're, if you're not in heaven right now, you still got work to do. One of the other things that I feel like we miss many times, how many more seconds do I have on this minute? Because I'm milking it right now. Squeezing it all out. Um, one of the things that I think we misunderstand is this concept of glory. Like if you think of glory in terms of like a church concept, I don't know what comes to your mind. I think maybe more gold emblems or, or maybe like really orchestral music, right? I, I'm not sure what you think of when you think of glory, but when we read how Jesus understands glory coming to God the Father, it's always united with obedience. Does, does this not draw you all the way back to chapter 14? What did Jesus say? If you love me, you will obey me because he gives you a work to do. And if you accomplish the work, you're bringing God glory. Do you know how you bring God more glory? You get more people to obey him. That's how you extend and you expand the glory of God. Boy, I'm at like three minutes for that, so we got to move on. Okay, number five, and this will get us into the main point I've got for us. Number five, Jesus focuses on being in the presence of the Father. That everybody chewing on that big burger bite right now because th this is this is the big this is the big one. Verse five, he says, "And now, Father, glorify me in the mansion that I'm going to get in heaven someday." Where I can walk in the woods and go fishing all the time and be with all. Is that what he, do you, do you see what Jesus says here? What is Jesus conceiving of when he is asking for glory? He focuses on being in the Father's presence. Boy, Jesus has a kind of a history of doing this. Um, he goes to the temple, right? Mom and dad leave with all their friends and family. They get like a day's journey away until someone finally says, Hey, where's that smart kid that you got? What was his name? Jesus? Where, where is this guy? Uh, they start looking around for Jesus. 
Nowhere to be found. Where was he? As, yeah, as they hike back to Jerusalem, they get to the temple. But do you remember Jesus' words? Jesus says, well, why were you looking for me? Shouldn't I have been in my father's house? Where was Jesus always concerned about? Being in the presence of the father. I don't know what you think about when you think about heaven. I think about seeing loved ones whom we've said goodbye to. I think about not waking up with that little lower back pain right there. I, I, and it's not that bad. I know some of you are like, give me a break. <laughs> I don't know what you think about when you think about heaven. I want to encourage you to think more about seeing Jesus to be in the presence of God the Father. Because that's what Jesus focused on. When the hardest day of his life was coming, when the cross was before him, the single concept that occupied all of his heart and all of his mind was being in the presence of God. All right, if that's true, then this is going to cause us to give some attention to what he says in verse 3. I'm not sure if you noticed, I skipped over verse 3 because this is the one that I want to focus on for the remainder of our time. Look with me again on verse 3. Jesus says, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you. Now, it's likely at this point that John inserts the remainder of the sentence and that Jesus doesn't actually say these words. The reason why we might think that is because the phrase, the only true God, that's a very Jehoiain term. That's something that John says. You can find it in his writings. We don't see Jesus using that term very often. And then secondly, Jesus would be referring to himself in the third person, right? He says that they may know you and then says, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, I don't know. No one knows. Maybe Jesus said that exact phrase, speaking of himself in the third person. I think it's probably more likely that John is inserting that in there for the church. And that the essence of what Jesus was asking was, and this is eternal life, that they may know you. Period. And if you want to make more sense of that, you will understand the pathway to knowing God through Jesus. This is how you come to know God. This, John writes, this, Jesus says, is eternal life. Okay, so, Ionios Zoe, that's that Greek word, right? Everything we talked about before, not bios, is this overflowing life. If that's knowing God, let's give some attention to that. I have a few points of conclusion as we wrap this up. First is this. Eternal life is knowing Jesus. Boy, that was tricky, huh? Everybody get that? That's like Sermon 101 right there. Verse 3, eternal life is knowing Jesus. And understand what it did not say. It does not say it's knowing godly things. Finish this sentence. Cleanliness is next to? Wrong. That's not godliness. Eternal life is not looking godly. I could walk up here with a robe and a big tall hat and I could speak to you in well, a little foreign language already this morning. None of that is eternal life. None of it is. Do you see how often we as people who grew up in this culture just easily confuse what eternal life might look like? Do you want to know why so many kids don't come to church? And I'm not saying our church. I just mean church in general. Church is super boring. Church is filled with this like staunchy, rigid, now 
You can't smile, can't talk. You're made to be seen and not heard. That's what comes to my mind. So I'm thinking of that. Like this, this idea of uh, condemnation or fear and reverence of God means that you do not get joy when you come to church. And it's going to last longer than you want. And the game's starting and we're all hungry. And why do we come here again? Listen, that is not eternal life. Eternal life is not amassing all of the traditions of becoming religious. Can I get an amen from me on that? Yeah, good. I think you're all with me there. Um, There's a story uh, in Luke's gospel. Mary and Martha. You know the story, right? Okay, here's here's the story. Um, Jesus is visiting the house of Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha. And as he makes his way into the home and begins teaching, one of the sisters is busy, 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 busy. She's got to do all the godly things. Because when guests come over, you got to make sure that the carpet has been swept. you got to make sure that the dishes are prepared. Somebody has the meal in the oven. And who's cleaning up all that mess over there? And she looks, and this sister sees that her other sister is not helping at all. Her other sister is sitting there at Jesus' feet, listening and learning and developing a relationship with him. And so she, as she gets opportunity, pulls him aside and says, why don't you tell her to help me? Can't you tell we have these guests here? And Jesus says to Martha, 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 Martha. (laughs) Your sister has chosen the greater thing and it will not be taken from her. Eternal life was something that Mary understood because eternal life is knowing Jesus. She got that. She wasn't pursuing Jesus so that the house would be clean or that she would have the right clothes on. Martha was wrapped up in religion and preparation and everything else that was not eternal life. Mary got it. She knew what it was. It's not an external conformity that you as a believer in the 21st century need to wear the right clothes or carry the right Bible or have proper church decorum. It's not a matter of, it's not a matter of bowing or, or any, anything, or speaking in tongues in some churches, they'll say is the proper decorum. These, these are things that are external. They're external. Those aren't eternal life. Don't confuse knowing Jesus with knowing things about Jesus that affect your life, which is, which is kind of my second point. It's not just knowing godly things, and it doesn't say knowing about Jesus. You can know the facts, right? You can know the date of the Exodus. You can know the number of the books in the Bible. You could, you could recite for me the book of Jude. None of that is eternal life. It's not knowing things. It's knowing him. It's not what you know. It's everybody with me on that? All right, number two. Transformation comes from knowing Jesus. Transformation comes from knowing Jesus. John records for us the title used most often and really in John's gospel is that he is the divine logos. We translate that as word. It means so much more than word, but this is who Jesus is. John, uh, uh, Paul will write to the Romans, don't be conformed to the likeness of this world. You guys know what that means? You, you, ever, you ever leave from this place and just wherever you're at, just feel like you're squished into a mold that doesn't conform with the spirit that lives within you, whether it's the language or the values of the people around you, I feel like I'm being confined. 
Paul says, don't be conformed to that, but be metamorpho, transformed. He says, by the renewing of your mind. And this comes how we understand God through his word. Jesus is the word, which means eternal life is knowing him. And knowing him is where you find transformation. Are you the same person that you used to be? Have your values grown? Have have your loves changed at all from what they once were? If you say yes, then I know you know who? You know Jesus. There's another story that we have from Luke's gospel. It's a story of a, um, a short little guy. What's his name? Zacchaeus. Climbed up a tree just to get a glimpse of Jesus. He knew about Jesus, right? I know about him. I've heard of him. Here was a guy who all his life likely was struggling to find acceptance. And one of the things that he found was that he had a little bit of the greed weed in his heart. And as a tax collector, many times he would take a little bit off the top for himself, even from his own people working for the Romans, wasn't popular, knowing he wasn't popular here, but still wanting to see Jesus climbs up a tree from a distance as the crowd is coming as Jesus makes his way by. Now, how freaked out would you be? If you were just there to like get a peek, right? And then suddenly the guy stopped and looked up at you. And, uh, someone else in this tree. <laughs> Jesus says, hey, come down here. I'm going to eat at your house today. I would be thinking a lot like Martha at that moment, right? <laughs> There's something that happens to Zacchaeus, though. Because Zacchaeus goes to his house and after time with Jesus... After he knows Jesus, there's a transformation that goes on. Do you remember the story? Zacchaeus says that all that I've stolen from all of these people, I will repay four times fold. And I'm going to stop that life, that behavior that I was involved in. I want nothing more to do with it. I'm transformed. Why? What happened to him? He went from living in a tree to knowing the word. He met Jesus. Because knowing Jesus brings transformation. All right, last one. Thirdly is this. The true disciple who believes in Jesus knows Jesus. This is an important one because I think it gets us down to this idea as to how we understand what salvation means. Now, you'll hear many times people say, do you believe in Jesus or do you believe that? Um, it's not the believing in the intellectual sense that we're concerned with. In fact, James teaches us that even demons do what? Even demons believe, right? They, they know who he is. But they're in, like the, they're in like the tree. That's the distance they are from Jesus. That's different than knowing him. So when we say believing, we mean knowing him intimately. We mean knowing him in a personal sense. Uh, it, it includes the first two that we've already looked at. Right? If you believe in Jesus, it means you, you know him and it believes that there's transformation in your life from knowing him. I want you to see this as a pattern throughout the New Testament, especially from John's writing. So um, this might be a little small. It's, first one here is John chapter 20, verse 31. But these things, John says, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. In 1 John 5, 13, John writes this. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know you have eternal life. Again, a little further in chapter 5, we also know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. 
And we are in him who is true by being in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Are you seeing a pattern here? There's one more that I know you know of. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. But then pay attention. That whoever believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Believing means knowing. Believing means knowing. I I hope you're not coming to church thinking that this saves you from anything. Because this is not eternal life. Eternal life is knowing Jesus. And the good news of the gospel is simply this. You will go to a separation eternally from him if you don't want to know him. You could believe who he is all day long. That's different than actually knowing him. Uh, One last passage I want to share with you. This is on Matthew's gospel. Jesus' words are this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out many demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, let that sink in for a moment. What is the issue that Jesus is concerned of for eternal life? It's not knowing stuff. It's not decorating your body with the right words or the right behaviors or actions to somehow be accepted. Eternal life is knowing Jesus. And that's my invitation to you today. That, that, that's what I want to share with you. So here, here it is. Eternal life is not someday. It starts right now. If you could let that truth sink in for a minute. minute. I think a lot of times we here on this side of eternity think, boy, in the sweet by and by, we're gonna be, it's going to be great when we get to glory. Victory in heaven. And, and it's fun to sing those songs, right? But we, if that's what we're thinking, then you missed a key point. He gave you the spirit right now. You can know Jesus right now. Eternal life for you can begin right now. And if eternal life begins right now, boy, that ought to change how we treat one another. Do you know that there are people who you do not like who are going to be with you forever in eternity? (laughs) Do not carry that with you into eternity. I want to encourage you as sons and daughters, where you have brothers and sisters around you, be reconciled to one another if you can. Unforgiveness, right? Who, who likes that? This idea of carrying bitterness in our hearts. Don't let that go with you into eternity. Eternal life begins when? It begins right now. So if you think that it's all just going to be glory, glory in heaven, I want you to know that opportunity is given to you now. You can start that right now. I want to ask you just a couple of questions as I close. Number one, how, how is your relationship with Jesus? Hopefully it's not just Sunday morning. I hope that you know him. And if you feel like I need to know him better, take time to get to know him better. Next, I want to ask you, how, does, how has knowing Jesus transformed your life? That's a really good question to ask. I am not what I once was. And I, I won't be what I am right now. I will continue to grow 
in transformation in Christ's likeness. Are you transformed? Is there any change in your life? What are you focusing on? Going to heaven or being with Jesus? Because for Jesus, when he was facing the greatest trial in his life, he focused on how do I glorify God? He's not focusing on himself. And he said, glorify me in your presence. That's what he was focused on. What are you focused on? Who are you seeking to bring glory to with your life's work? Earning another buck? Getting another badge, a promotion? Who, who, are you, who are you glorifying with the work that you have? Again, I could preach a whole lot longer on all these. Who has the authority over your life? Is it you? What did the text say? All authority is given to who? Yeah, do you act like that? Ah, I'm preaching to myself here, folks. I, I, I need to hear this message. I need to know once more that whatever it is that I desire should fall under the governance of what brings him glory, not what brings me glory. And this is true for me. I just want to share my own journey with you and encourage you. Find eternal life right now. It's found in knowing him. Amen? Let's pray.